0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Humanize Me. I'm Bart Campolo. This is my podcast. And I am often accused of being overly exuberant and of trying to cram way too many ideas in a small space. And I'm gonna fight those urges today, but I gotta tell you, there's a lot going on in the world, in my life, in my head, and 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 I like right like right now, I wake up almost every morning with ideas for this podcast of ways to make it bigger and better and more helpful. And I think that part of that right now is just, I got so much feedback off that one episode with Marty and it sort of let me know, like there's people out there and a lot of you told me like, this is what I'm looking for. This, you told me things you were looking for. And I'm like, "Ah, I'm trying to figure out how we can do it all. Because I I think we want to have stuff where there are, people talking about amazing things in our bodies and in the universe and in our world that that sort of fill you with wonder and awe because we know that like being just excited about life has a tendency to enrich it and make us better people. But then there are other people that are like, "Listen, you keep talking about community building. I live in this town. There's no community for me. I wish I lived where you are so I could be part of that thing you're doing at USC." And what I keep wanting to say is like, "Listen, there is no magic here. This stuff is easy. I don't want to say it's easy, but it's not complicated. And so one of the things I want to do is, and I've I've already lined up a bunch of people who are community building experts. They're people that have different ways of helping people connect. And what I want to do is I want to make sure that if you listen to this podcast kind of week in and week out for a few months, that you'll go like, I could do that. And that people will be starting not kind of big organized like church-like entities. I mean, some people can do that, but that's not for most of us a realistic possibility. But to, but to start to learn the technology of running a great dinner party or running a great storytelling gathering or or, or running a great something where people come together a great, a great opportunity for people to connect in that way that really does enrich and shape and sometimes even transform for the better of people's lives. So we need to be doing that. Then there's other stuff like there's cool book ideas and there's uh, like this whole idea of creating secular devotionals that I want to talk about. It looks, now we've got this discussion thing going on Facebook. So if you go to like humanize me podcast, there's a Facebook discussion group and you can join it really easily. And there's a friend of mine who's moderating it, um, guy named Bob Cleary and he's doing an amazing job and And so there's this conversation going on. So you're going to meet people there. Um, And and it looks like, remember I had Peter Montoya, the new Freethinkers guy. It looks like we're going to somehow find a way to like merge these Facebook entities. And we're going to start putting out not just more and better... We're going to put out content in between the podcasts. It'll be cool. And then I think I'm even going to try, and some of you may want to jump in on this, like we'll come up with a format and then everybody can submit, but we're coming up with this kind of devotional format where some, where like there's a, a reading and then some thoughts and maybe a little follow-up activity. But the idea of sort of like our daily bread for people who don't believe in God, but who want to each morning have a, like a dose of thoughtfulness to kind of get them oriented right to the rest of their day and so i mean all this kind of cool stuff is happening i want to add music to the podcast that's a big thing i i I was talking to a young woman the other day who was saying the thing she missed most when she left being a christian was contemporary christian music which was like music that was upbeat and inspiring and sort of filled her with good thoughts and I'm like, there's a lot of music like that out there in the world. We've got we've to gotta find a way to collate that. And so maybe somebody that's listening is going to go like, that would be a fun project. I'd like to help you with that. And you should write to me and say, because I'm going to need somebody who, who kind of, I can steer people to. But what I want to do is I want to create like this gigasmic playlist of music for joyful, positive living joyful positive secular living like music that sort of focuses on the kind of stuff that we want to be thinking about in our lives so yeah and i want to bring music into this podcast so that like we play a song maybe at the end of every episode that's sort of like hey here's a song you might want to be exposed to um you know maybe some of the listeners this podcast who are making music like we can we can do that kind of thing um yeah so there's all sorts of stuff that we can do better and that we're going to do better as we move forward, and I'm excited about all that. But right now, I'm excited about this conversation that I'm, I had with Catherine Osment. And um, she wrote this book, Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age. And her fancy publisher, Harper, sent it to me. And I read it, and I immediately wanted to talk with her. And as soon as I talked with her, I felt like it was like I was talking to a sister I hadn't seen for a long time. But it was. she's just a, a beautiful woman doing beautiful things. And I think you're going to dig this conversation. I, I don't want to say she's doing beautiful things. I would say she's a beautiful woman who went looking for beautiful things in a way that a lot of us are looking for beautiful things. And I think she found some really good stuff. So, uh, yeah, without any further ado, let's jump into that conversation. I'll see you on the other side.
1: You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo.
0: You're at home, I'm
2: home. Yeah. All right.
0: And, yeah. And, and, and this is still a good time for you to talk.
2: This is great. My kids are at school. They can't bother me. They won't come in and ask for a glass of water or something that they should be able to get for themselves. But of course, they want me to get it for them.
0: So now, how old are these children of yours? these days? Uh,
2: They are 13, 10 and six. Wow. Yeah. You're in the thick. I'm very much in the thick, although I think this is an easier thick in some ways than when they're real little, you know?
0: Yeah, but, but, you know, it's, it's funny though. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this book that you wrote and I'm thinking, how did you write a book in the middle of the thick? I can't get any, I can't write an email and my kids are all grown.
2: Yeah, it was not easy. One thing I did that, you know, I think that when you have young kids, you just have to kind of hustle a little bit. So whenever we would go on vacation, I look around for people I might interview near there. So maybe at the local university, or maybe there's a secular humanist group. And so I tried to kind of you know, if you know, and when we lived in Boston, I did a lot of research in that area, and then we moved to Chicago, I started doing it here, and I just tried to make it uh, geographically work because the, the oh, it's
0: so funny. Good. I just assumed you were still in Boston,
2: you know, we moved about two years ago, and we live in Chicago now,
0: and it's funny, the reason I assumed you were still in Boston was because all these famous names keep coming up in the book. And they're all like famous Harvard people and famous MIT people. And I'm thinking like, she's just like zooming around town, talking (laughs) to all the smart people.
2: I was, it was great. There was such a wealth and it was so many people that were talking about this topic that were there. It was like, I was just surrounded, um, by them. But yeah, that was sort of the beginning of the book. A lot of the research took place right there at Harvard, Boston university, MIT. Why did, why did you move to, uh, Chicago. Uh, From my husband's job. He's an economist. He studies environmental economics, and uh, they offered him a wonderful um, job here, which is to direct their Energy Policy Institute, which looks at global warming and climate change.
0: Which university offered him this fancy job? The
2: University of Chicago.
0: Oh, okay. Wow.
2: So we're here. He grew up here, a block away from where we live, and- it's been really interesting because it's given us a kind of connection that we were lacking that i write about in the book
0: being close to the co- to the university
2: the university is part of it, but, um, being close to where he grew up, um, and having a community of people that knew him when he was a child yeah, yeah. and now know our kids and can say, you know, when your dad was little, this happened, you know, we didn't really have as much of that in Boston. And so I think that that has been really nice. Yeah.
0: So, so here's the thing. Like I read this book and like, I, you know what, here's the funny thing is like I'm not a very good interviewer. I'm just a good talker with people, if that makes any sense. I know I'm supposed to start out like Catherine. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Tell me what inspired this book in the first place. Right. But like my vibe after reading it is, is the weirdest thing for me about your book, Mm. which, you know, and, and, and and when I do the podcast, I'll do an intro in which I'll talk about the title of the book and why it's so wonderful and all that stuff. But, but when I was, when I was, Looking at it, the thing that was struck me is that so much of what you searched for is kind of what happened to me after I left Christianity, evangelical Christianity, at the age of forty-five. Wow! Having been like a big shot evangelical Christian leader, right? So I had this whole life in the thick. Yes. You, however, when I looked at the book, I just assumed you were going to tell the story of like growing up in youth group in Arkansas, and right. you know, and all this. And you did spend some time in Arkansas, yeah, yeah. But it it feels like you never
2: drank the Kool Aid, right? It's a, I feel like I was always standing on the outside, looking in, and sort of admiring what I was seeing, and sort of a little bit envious of it. Like if I could only have that, I would be fulfilled and happy. And I think part of the journey was realizing that what I had was pretty great, you know, and that the people, you know, like my Catholic friends growing up, maybe they were looking at me and thinking they wish they had what I had, (laughs) you know?
0: Yeah. And I I mean, I'm now you did have some people in your life that had it, right? Like your grandmother had it, right? So there were people and were they like hardcore Catholics, all of them?
2: No. So the Catholics were really, I was growing up in Connecticut and I lived in a very, um, Italian Catholic neighborhood and we were the only people who lay on our couches on Sunday mornings and didn't go to mass and, uh, my, but my whole family's from Arkansas and they're all, um, evangelical, you know, Baptists. Um, My grandmother was Presbyterian, but very religious and turned more fundamentalist as she got older. Um, So there were both of those worlds, but there was a similarity, even though they were different uh, religions. There was the similarity of this feeling of tribal togetherness that I really... um, watched with envy because our family was, my parents were also divorced and we moved around and I never felt rooted. And so I thought, Oh, if only I had, um, a faith, you know, if I were Jewish or if I, you know, were one of these things, I wouldn't feel so lost.
0: Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I I don't know if you know anything about what I do.
2: Yeah, I've read I've read your website. That's oh, where okay. yeah. most of my information. Yeah.
0: So so at, at USC, oh. I'm the humanist chaplain, which basically means I'm the tribe builder.
2: Uh huh.
0: Um, and 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 that's what I find is I I'm with all these privileged, really smart, capable young people, mm-hmm. and lots of them grew up the way you did, sort of without a tribe. Right. And it's interesting because I've, you know, I've, I grew up in the, in the thick of the tribe. And when I, that was the biggest problem of leaving. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, oh no, I'm not going to go to heaven. I mean, by that time I I had stopped believing in heaven and hell long ago. And it, it was just this community that I was a part of. Right. And so my, now my vibe is, is that you, you were feeling okay until you had kids Right. Now, how did that change? How did that change so, the equation for you?
2: Yeah, that was interesting because I had sort of just lived and made my peace with this feeling all my life. And then I realized I was sort of passing that feeling onto my children, this feeling of not belonging, this feeling of not being part of something. And I thought then I felt, oh, I don't want to, I don't want this to be their inheritance I want them to inherit a feeling of belonging and connection and, and a sense of who they are. I don't want them to grow up feeling lost like I did. And so that was really the genesis. When I told my son that we were nothing, when I blurted that out to him, when he asked what we were, I thought, oh. Yeah, I mean,
0: that's a poignant scene. I mean, yeah. you know, like you're, 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 you're looking out the window, literally like through the glass. And yeah. on the other side are the religious people and having their procession. <laughs>
2: Right. And it came to a head. I said, oh, to myself, like, oh, this is what I've been telling myself all these years. But now I'm actually telling it out loud to my kids. And that's different. That didn't feel right. I felt bad about that.
0: You know, it's so interesting. And, 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 and we won't go there. But like, yeah. here's the thing I'll tell you is, is that the last couple podcasts I did mm-hmm. were one was my my wife and I mm-hmm. taking up a question that I have never really Flirted with much since I since I left Christianity, which was, do I need to be attacking bad Christian doctrine? Right. Um, and so it was this kind of, I had this. I, I read actually a passage of Ingersoll, mm-hmm. where he was talking about the, the evil doctrine of hell, yeah. and, and the way this terrorizes kids, and mm-hmm. the way that this creates in pe- people a sense of of just panic and fear but then the other thing we started talking about was original sin Mm -hmm. and the notion that it's not even just that you're going to hell but it's that like just by being a human being you deserve to go to hell like you are and and one of the things that happened to me and and this is a long way of getting to a, a brief point but one of the women wrote back to me who listens to the podcast and she said you know when i was growing up they taught me that christian means christ comes first and then I-A-N, I am nothing.
2: Oh. Yeah. And so
0: the interesting thing is, is that your sense of, from outside of religion, you're like, I'm nothing. Meaning, I don't belong to a tribe. Right. But from within the tribe, one of the teachings for a lot of people is, yes, I am nothing. Like, I deserve nothing. Like, the tribal identity is all that matters, and God is all that matters. I personally am nothing. Right, and so it's just interesting, like like you know, your thing was I'm la- yeah. I'm I'm an individual without a group, right? And then there are these people that are in the group that totally negates their individual yes. value.
2: You know, it's so interesting you bring that up because I remember as a kid, my mom had a scrapbook of all things from high school. She had an incredibly religious upbringing, and um, one of the things in the scrapbook was this little poem, and it was called "Less of Me." And it talked about, it was like a prayer, I think. And I don't remember the exact wording, but it was something along the lines of, please God, let me think more and more of you and less of me. That was the whole point of the poem. We well, must
0: was, become greater. We must become less. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, that's just stone cold. It's in there.
2: Yeah. yeah. So, so,
0: so, but, but you're sitting there with your kid. Yeah. And you're going like, we don't have a tribal identity and, and you're, it sounds like you're because of your upbringing, the first place you would go looking for a tribal identity was in organized religion.
2: Yeah. I think religion is so dominant and it was really, even though I wasn't in it, I was in and out of it. Right. Like I, I went to church with my dad and my stepmother and, and attended Catholic school for a while. So it's in and out of it. But, um, I was surrounded by it in a way that I definitely felt like the outlier when I wasn't in you know going to Sunday services and stuff. And so for me it seemed like that was a primary place where people had their sense of um of self and it was also tied into ethnicity, you know. So my friends were Italian and Catholic. Um and my you know relatives were all these you know white Protestants um and I remember I had a, a good Jewish friend growing up and so there seemed to be something more than just religion but religion seemed an important part of of it of giving people a sense of of, of identity that was strong
0: I just realized something that I should do hmm. I'm going to put on my earphones here okay on the computer <laughs> just because I'm worried that your voice is going into my feedback loop. Oh,
2: okay.
0: <laughs> All right. So this is, this is me being technically not excellent. <laughs> All right. All right. That doesn't change anything for you, does it? All right. No. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah. So, so what do you think now? Cause then you go on this, like, I'm going to talk to everybody. Right, and I, I, did you guys, as a family, were you trying stuff too? Were you like, let's go to the Unitarian Universalist Church, or let's <laughs> let's try the Sunday Assembly? Or
2: I did some of that. So I I, did, I lived right near Harvard Square at the time, and so the Humanist Hub, which is a, a fantastic organization, had a lot of um, volunteer activities for kids. Yeah where you could go and do a park cleanup or a meal packing. And so I did things like that with them because those are things I would have done otherwise. But I didn't really want to use them as lab rats in my experiment. Do you know? I was a little bit—I mean, I did—once I took them to church and I made them go to Sunday school, and afterwards they're like, don't ever do that
1: to
2: <laughs> <laughs> And um And it, you know, it was sort of like my story to tell. And even um, when I introduce them into the book, I try not to— give them feelings they weren't having. I try to just say the questions they asked me or the things they said as really prompts for me to go out and find answers. And I didn't want, I just, I I started to feel a little queasy because I thought I would do all that and I would bring them along with me. And then I thought, I don't think that's, that didn't sit well with me to do that so that I didn't end up doing that. What about your husband? Yeah, kind of the same thing. I mean, he's in the book. To some degree. Well, he's really, he wants the answers because, you know, he was raised Jewish. He sees the power of religion, but he doesn't want to go back to synagogue. And it hasn't since his bar mitzvah, pretty much. And um, so he wanted to know what the findings were, but he did not either want to go through the process. In fact, one day I came home from the Universalist, Unitarian Universalist Church and I said, I think I found the answer. Let's go to this thing. It's great. They've got the kids program. And he's like, well, you know, I can never do that. Like it feels too Christian to me. I can't go to a Unitarian church. And I, said, and I was just crestfallen, I was like, how am I going to end my book? We're not going to have it. <laughs> it was supposed to have the happy ending. <laughs> yeah. And then I realized that's the exact problem. Like I've got to be real. These are the problems people are facing where more and more of us are mar- intermarrying with people from a different background. And there aren't always good answers. And so that became part of the story.
0: Yeah. Now, gosh, I, I, there's so many places to go. Like, I, I'm like, there's stuff I want to talk to you about. Cause like, I think other people would be interested, but then like, here's what I'm actually interested in. Okay. Um, it's all about me. Um, so here's my question is like, I know you had a, you, you checked out like Sunday assembly and I don't know, did you check out the Oasis people or
2: did they not exist? They did exist, but I just couldn't get myself to them. They were too far from where I was living. So I actually hope to go to them at some point, but, um, I've learned a lot about them. I actually interviewed someone from there the other day for a story I'm
0: working on. If there is an answer, Mm -hmm. uh, an organized answer that exists right now, it's them. I mean, I've, I've spoken at the one in Houston. I spoke at the one in, um in kansas city yeah I'm really tight with those people yeah um, they, they've they've just gotten connected with a guy named john delin who you probably have not met either mm-hmm. but john runs a podcast called mormon stories he is the guru of ex-mormons oh um he has twenty thousand podcast listeners all of you know and, and all he does is he interviews people telling their stories of like exiting the mormon church which is the most tribal Right. Of them all. And right. the loss of being a Mormon is total. Yeah. You get cut off. It, yeah. it, it has economic ramifications and it was, it's such a wondrous community. They do. <laughs> they're so good to each other that when you lose it, you are adrift in the world. That's right. And John's yeah. actually fallen in with the Houston, the, the Oasis people uh-huh. because there are more Oasis congregations popping up in Utah than anywhere else. Right. Because those people are desperate. Right. And that's the closest thing that they have. So, you know, they meet every week. It's not like Sunday Assembly, which is just once a month. Right. But it's, it's, the the question I, this is all leading to a question for you is That is, (laughs) if you'd have walked your husband into something Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: was thoroughly secular. Yeah. And yet emotionally resonant. um, Right. um, Because... Like, like, and and I I can understand like Sunday assembly. It's just a little too, a little too rah-rah for for any of us. Yeah. Not for any of us, but for a lot of people. Yeah. And especially for somebody like with your background or maybe with my sort of background. Yeah. But I still want emotional resonance. Right. And I'm guessing that when you went into the UU church. You felt a little bit of like, okay, this is a little like the stuff I remember from Catholic school. Right. This is a little like what the evangelicals had, mm-hmm. but that's exactly why your husband's going. Like, that's why I don't want it. Right. But what would, what do you think would happen to a guy like him if you walked in, if you walked him into something that was thoroughly secular, like the Oasis?
2: I just don't think he wants to join something like that. I think it's part of that non-joining... So I think it's funny because people always say, well, what did you find? What's the answer? And and for me, I love to go to places like that. And I went to the Humanist Hub a lot, which I think does a great job. Um, I found this wonderful storytelling community called The Hearth in Oregon. Um, oh, that's Mark
0: I, right? Yeah.
2: He's he, you know, yeah. an
0: old friend of mine from our Christian days. Oh, my gosh. Oh, all through your book. I'm like, I know that guy. Yeah. I I remember her. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But Mark's a wonderful person. And he has that kind of quiet charisma that just people just want to be around him.
2: See, my husband would probably resonate with that. Like he and I, if we had the hearth here in Chicago, that would be the kind of thing we would go to because it's – I think the things that we, you know, we like to go out and hear live music or go to a play or, you know, and it feels a little bit in that vein. It's less of a sort of set regular community, which I feel like we have in our neighborhood, which is sort of another thing that I sort of discovered. Um, and it's more of a, a collective experience. And so I think that we like to have these collective experiences, but we don't always want that to also be a regular Sunday community. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. So I live in a neighborhood called Hyde Park in Chicago, and it's got this sort of really interesting history and community that is, it is our oasis. I mean, we live in an oasis now and it's... um, very religious. There's, you know, lots of there's seminaries and, and religious institutions and houses of worship, but there's this undergirding of secular humanism in the whole sort of part this part of town. Um, and it's a long history of activism and, um, community service and commitment to diversity and helping others. And I feel like that is what we were looking for, really. And that we ended up finding it. I was surprised. I didn't know this is where I was gonna find it. And up finding it just on my street, basically, you know, oh, yeah. in the people I interact with. This and-
0: doesn't surprise me at all. Um I spent the last ten years before I moved to LA in Cincinnati living as part of an intentional community. Yeah. With four five four families on the street in this very hardcore inner city ghetto. And we built kind of a neighborhood fellowship there. Yeah, And it was, you know, it was a secular kind of deal. I mean, you know, a lot of us were burned out ex-Christians and, mm-hmm. um, and, and so, but what was interesting about it was, is it was, you know, street people, it was hard, difficult personalities bringing them mm-hmm. together, but we were able over the course of a few years to create a real family, a real fellowship there. And everybody lived within four blocks of each other. Yeah. So then I come to LA and I start going to these gatherings of incredibly like-minded people. We all believe the same stuff, yeah. but they don't live in the same neighborhood. Right. And it turns out it's easier to take people that live close to each other yeah. and teach them how to love each other than it is to take people who are, have a total affinity for each other but live far apart yeah. and get them to feel connected.
2: Yes, that's, that's well put. I I feel that very much. I feel that, you know, and I like both, but, um, when it comes down to it, you know, what, what do you realistically do? You spend time in the neighborhood. You see this, you know, it's the people you see every day it's that proximity. you make those connections with.
0: Yeah. It's proximity. And, and so, you know, and it's funny when you describe like we would go to the hearth, you know, uh-huh. the uh, things like that are more like going to a really good concert yeah. Um, where you go like, that'll be emotionally resonant. That'll be something beautiful. Maybe we'll go with some friends from the neighborhood, but right. like, it isn't the neighborhood. It's just this thing that some of you like to do.
2: Right. Right. And what's interesting about the hearth is that it is these big quarterly events, you know, and he draws like 400 people or something into the synagogue. It's the biggest place in town. So we had to find that to fit everyone. But he also has satellite smaller groups throughout, you know, the year for families say, or teens or something. And so I could see, you know, if I lived there, I could see getting involved more on that grassroots, more regular level. Cause that to me felt like it was it was about the immediate community. You know, I mean, Mark Iaconelli started it. He said, because neighbors didn't know their neighbors anymore. Yeah. People weren't really helping each other. And so here's a way people will stand up on stage and tell a story about something they've struggled with in their life. And hopefully engender some compassion among everybody listening. Um, and so it's a series of these storytellers and the idea being let's, let's get to know our neighbors, let's get to know each other. And and it doesn't matter what our beliefs are, we all have these human experiences, let's share those. And at least we have that as our common denominator.
0: Did you come to that conclusion that it doesn't matter what our beliefs are? Or do you think beliefs really do matter?
2: I guess it depends on how people use their beliefs, right? I mean, so we and our kids have friends in our neighborhood who are, mormon and muslim and catholic and jewish and um i don't know if we have any evangelical friends but maybe we do we just don't know it
0: oh no you know it
2: yeah (laughs) 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 the beliefs um they don't come up and again i think it's because we live in 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 such a mixed community that but what about your
0: conversation with marshall gans because yeah. like, you were talking with Marshall Gantz, who's like this fancy intellectual at Harvard. Right? Yeah. He was talking to you about the idea of needing a public narrative. Right. And that you need a kind of a big story that, tell, that, that organizes our relationships, not with God necessarily. Right. But with each other. Right. And, and so if you're in this neighborhood and everybody's relating yeah. to each other, but what's the public narrative?
2: Or, so I think the story is the neighborhood. I think um, we live in Hyde Park. That is the story of us, as Marshall Gans would call it. And we here in this place value diversity. And so you can be whatever you want, but then you have to let me be whatever I want. (laughs) Um, And so it was sort of um, getting, at least where I live, I think it's getting underneath the beliefs to what are our values. You know, our friends who are religious, they're living here because they value diversity as well. And they value, you know, the institution of the University of Chicago and education and science and, and also, um, you know, being good people. And so I think that we don't really talk about beliefs don't come up as much, but the story of us is. We live in this kind of lefty liberal you know enclave in Chicago, and that's what connects us and so when there's a, a fundraiser you know at the local neighborhood club, and we get all our our sons out to go play basketball to raise money for the neighborhood club and And the beliefs sort of take a little bit of a backseat. I mean, I think that's part of America's secularization story that's happening right now, but it's not happening everywhere, obviously. But that you know, the hope is that we will come to see that what we share is actually pretty large and what we disagree on, you know, we'll disagree on, but let's agree to disagree. And let's talk about what we have in common.
0: And I wonder if that only works for really rich, really smart people. It may
2: be that I live in a really privileged place for that.
0: Oh, there's no question that you live in a really privileged place. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. No. That I think that's true. But um,
0: I mean, I just wonder about that because yeah. you know I, I sort of feel like there are a lot of things that work really well if you have a whole bunch of really educated rich people.
2: Right. Well, and it's true that a lot of these secular you know humanist groups that's who's going to them, right? Um. And and yet I do think there's some something going on on the internet where people are of any walk of life and of any region of the country are able to find like-minded companionship. Uh
0: That's the problem. That's not the solution. That's the problem. Well, is everybody's got their own news. I mean, at least as far as I can see, like everyone's got their own news. Everybody's got like in this election, you've got two candidates like living in completely different universes Everybody can find their own stuff.
2: Well, that's true. You can totally curate your your existence so that you're only interacting with people you you know. But think about it this way. If you are living in a small town, you know, like a guy that I interviewed in the Bible Belt, and you suddenly are the only person you know who doesn't believe in God, the Internet is a lifesaver for you because you can find other atheists there and you can actually find, you know, I had a guy tell me when he left his religion, he was so upset. He was so confused. He started Googling, um, you know, leaving religion and things like that. And the word secular humanism came up and he said, all my life I've been told that secular humanism was the worst thing you could do. And he read the definition and he said, my God, I'm a secular humanist yeah, yeah. and it was wonderful for him. Oh, then he found the Harvard humanist community. He connected with Greg Epstein. He, he's brought his kids there. You know, he's, it was a door for him. Oh my gosh. Opened. I mean, I ha-
0: half of my counseling practice and coaching practice yeah. are isolated people who are mm-hmm. the only, non-believer in their family or in their community and they're calling sort of like, how do I navigate this? Right. And they found me on the, they found me through the podcast. They found me on the internet. Right. And, and so that's the beauty of it. Yeah. But the difficulty I think is, you know, when, like when I think about what people need and I mean, your book is, is a really good, almost travelogue of you're going to need an you're going to need some narrative you're going to need right. a, a way of organizing your morality you're mm-hmm. you're going to need these different things a lot of those things i just don't feel like people can get on the internet
2: right no and you know what this one guy i met from mississippi said is you know no one that you know on the internet can bring you chicken soup when you're sick yeah you know the real like human interaction yeah and i i think that isolation and loneliness I think the research shows these are on the upswing in our society. More and more people are lonely. They they say they have fewer close friends than in the past on surveys. Um, and and so I think that sort of disconnection is a problem.
0: Um, it's funny. When you were up in Boston, Yeah. I don't know if you ran into a woman named Sherry Turkle.
2: Oh, yeah. Who wrote... Um,
0: Reclaiming Conversation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and alone together. That's right. Yes. That's right. So, uh, I I interviewed her.
0: I t- uh, did you interview her?
2: Yeah, for an, an article I wrote about um raising kids in a digital age.
0: That's right. That's Yeah. That. And I'll tell you what, if you went back and talked to her now around mm-hmm. this subject,
2: mm-hmm. she
0: would have a lot to say. Interesting. Because she's deeply concerned that the devices mm-hmm. um are creating in us a lack of empathy that they are, that, 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 young people in particular relate to each other through, um, mediation so much that they don't learn to read faces. They don't learn to understand when they're hurting people's feelings right. and that they're feeling that the disconnects and they're yeah. curating themselves online and that's causing them to be alienated from their cell themselves. And, and right. she's just, I mean, honestly, I think one of the, if she read your book, she would say, I, Yeah, that tribal thing. Right. That's a really important tool for socialization. Right. Right. And without it, you're going to have some really unhappy people. Yeah. Yes.
2: And on the other hand, I don't think it's so black and white, though, because I do think it's a doorway for people um, when, as you say, when they're alone, when they're isolated, it is a way for them to maybe find their people, right? That's
0: what, I think that's true. But the problem yeah. is, is that what happens when the doorway is addictive? Right. I see. So you're supposed to be walking yeah. through this, 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 you're walking up this ladder to get on the boat and then yeah. you find out like, oh, the ladder is amazing. And the ladder, the ladder <laughs> will have sex with you anytime you want. And the ladder is, you know, like is, it never judges you. And, right. and, and up there on the boat, there are real human beings and you're like, I right. hey, just stay down here on this ladder.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And it, it's, it, I see it a lot in parenting because there's a big sort of almost like the first selfie generation I feel like was moms taking pictures of their kids every five minutes. <laughs> and um, and I'll see a lot on Facebook um, pictures of kids who have just hurt themselves or they're getting stitches or something. And I'll think, shouldn't the parent be holding the child and not taking the picture and putting it? Um, on Facebook, it's like there's this this culture of wanting to keep presenting ourselves to the world and yeah. putting our image out there.
0: Well, have you been to any of your kids' uh, school programs? None of the parents are watching the program. Right. They're all looking down to make sure they've captured it on their on their phone.
2: Yeah. 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 Like and I just be
0: in the moment. Like, just be exactly. there.
2: Well, and there's something really, I mean, my own childhood memories are in some big box somewhere, all scattered and mixed up. And I, I like that, because when I think of childhood, I piece it together in my imagination. I don't want a blow-by-blow. Pl- blow. I don't want every day charted. But we've become kind of obsessed with keeping um, digital records of everything we do. So,
0: so I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, and I think, like, when you start to think— I, I mean, it seems like you went on your search for, I'm looking at the subtitle of the book, the search for yeah. meaning purpose and belonging in a secular age. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are on that search. Mm-hmm. And I think like, invariably when you start thinking about meaning, purpose and belonging, you do end up going like, yeah, how is all this technology affecting our sense of meaning, mm-hmm. and purpose and belonging? And, mm-hmm. and I guess like, did you, are you, are you optimistic? It has Hyde Park like you're like I've seen it. I've seen the future yeah. in Hyde Park, or or do you are, are 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 you thinking that Hyde Park is more of a of a vanishing like the, the the last the last vestige of another age?
2: Yeah, I think it's very hard to create that kind of community if it doesn't already have a history, that kind of sense of a of an identity within a community. I think it's hard to just. You know, it's hard what these secular humanist groups are doing is to suddenly come and say, "You know, here we are, and and we're just inventing this right now." It's something about it that feels—I um, don't know—not—not not quite. Natural. It's a little artificial, but now you're saying the Oasis has really done this great job and it sounds like they pull in like local performers, local musicians. So it's got this organic feel to it. So I think that's could be the way.
0: I think they're still going to struggle in some ways, unless and until they embrace this one really bizarre thing Mm -hmm. and that's leadership. Right. None of these groups want there to be a personality at the center interesting but like you even you go to the hearth and you go like listen there's a person i i know mark there's yeah. a personality at the center of that thing
2: right right
0: and it bleeds through and and you say, but he's not always dominating. And I go, like, yeah, 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 that's the thing. But right. there's a sense in which somebody's curating the community.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think having a visionary leader is really one thing. I I didn't really find a lot of when I was out there um, writing this book. Mark is a good example of that. Um, and I think that people have asked that. It's, who are the, the visionary leaders? Who's the sort of the heart? Who's the Pope Francis of secular humanism? Right on. Right on.
0: And it's funny because like I sometimes wax eloquent on this podcast. Yeah. And I always get notes from people. Some people saying, that's what I'm looking for, baby. Mm-hmm. You sound like a preacher. You, right. sound like, you sound like somebody with a vision. Yes. And then other people write back in horror and say no, like this is what we're trying to get away from. We got hurt by this. We don't want this. Right. But I don't think there's any substitute for it. Right. I I think you got to find a way to get rid of bad leaders. And I think (laughs) you got to find a way to, to to spot people that are, that are worthy of following and and, and try to protect your leaders from corruption. But my goodness, I haven't seen any enterprise. Right. You know, there's not a university on this, on, on the map that really thrives without, Somebody at the helm, somebody who has a vision.
2: Well, look how Bernie Sanders galvanized a whole generation of millennials. I mean, he he was authentically speaking about you know real issues, and I think that Bernie Sanders phenomenon is exactly what what we're talking about. Is how do you take as you know? I know he's got a Jewish background. he seems like a secular humanist to me, but he was. I wish he would have
0: just said it.
2: Um, that's the kind of thing I think really people, people want to be moved. They don't want to just have a lecture. You know, I, I can go to a lecture at any bookstore university. If I go to one of these groups, I actually want to be moved, um, to think differently.
0: And and, you know, it's funny because I, I, I I took over the Sunday assembly in Los Angeles one week. Uh I convinced their leaders to let me run it. And I ran it in what I would say is like an emotionally resonant way. Yeah. Like the music that we picked was, was yeah. choral music mm-hmm. about values. Right. Uh, there were greeters like at a church or synagogue yeah. there, there were, there was, you know, there was all kinds of stuff that was aimed at the, the, the personal testimonies. Mm-hmm. And then I preached a sermon right. about, about caring about other people Right. and about building a community that was identified that way. And I mean, it was so interesting because there was a huge response At the end, people stayed around and talked. I thought, we've done it. We've, you know, we've, and their leader sort of came back to me and said, like, that was really amazing. We're not going to go there. Yeah. That freaked a lot of people out.
2: Well, then I think you should start your own group. (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah. I mean, there's the TED talk, right? There's a whole science of how to do the TED talk. But there's, I think what you and I and Mark Gacconelli are talking about something else. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think one reason, you know, you notice this every May and June and July, these um commencement speeches there'll be a few of them that just go viral like david foster wallace a few years ago and and they get at meaning and And they get at what does it mean to live a good life and they go viral because we're dying for a sermon a good old secular sermon is what those things are
0: and i mean and that's really you know, I mean, it's funny, like if, if you, I'll send you, I'll send you the links to a couple of the podcasts that are the most like overtly that way. Yeah. And, um, and I'm, I'm convinced that the people that are going to build this movement are going to be people that come out of religion Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and that aren't afraid to use what they learned there. Um, because that isn't, that isn't Christian technology or Muslim technology or or, or, or Jewish technology. That's just human technology. That's a bunch of people that have been living as pack animals and tribal animals for thousands and thousands of years going like, yeah, you know, if you move together um, in rhythm, that'll help you. And if you do the same thing on a weekly basis, that's going to help. Right. And and yeah. And if you have somebody that goes around and sort of sits with people and gives pastoral Mm. counsel, then when people show up on Sunday, right. they're going to feel, they're, they're going to feel more connected. And the person who puts together the program will know what it should include because right. he or she will have talked to everybody. Yeah. And so I'm really, it's, it's interesting that you say that in your sojourn, you didn't find a lot of great leadership or a lot of charismatic leadership.
2: Yeah. You know, um, cause I think that's what we need. Cause a lot of the things you just listed Um, the science now is out and says, that's true. Singing together with people breeds compassion. Yeah. Um, You know, all these things, um, there was this really interesting study I read about in my book where they measured the heart rates of people walking on fire and the people watching them and they became in sync. Yeah. Um, So all of this physiological stuff happens when we come together in these rituals. When
0: that's what happens when somebody gets up at Mark's thing and goes all vulnerable. Yeah. And you're going like, it's like they're walking on fire. Right. And you say, well, that only really touches their heart, like their heart's racing, but nobody else's is. And you go like, no, test it out. Everybody's heart's racing. Yes. Everybody's identifying. And when it's over, we did this thing together.
2: Yeah. 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 One thing I found that I thought was really interesting was secular Buddhism, and I spent a weekend in New Mexico with Stephen Batchelor, who's written Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist, and his research is really interesting. He was a Buddhist monk for a couple decades and came out of it and realized... Um, his belief is that all the mystical stuff of Buddhism was sort of added later by Indian mystics and that the Buddha himself was actually really a scientist and everything he teaches about meditation. um, now science is showing us is really true that we can quiet our minds and, and, and live, you know, more contemplative lives. And these people were doing the same thing. They were, they were wanting to sort of go through what we think of as religious type rituals, but they were doing it in a secular way. And it was giving them a way to to live in the world, a way to be in the world that was helping them. A lot of them were people who work in really difficult jobs in prisons and hospitals. And they were getting these tools of secular meditation that they could then use in their lives. And so I feel like there's so many aspects of of the world that we think of as religious, that we're just sort of sweeping away and saying, we don't want to do any of that rituals. My God, you know, but in fact, um, yeah. they've, they've been around for a long time and maybe for good reason.
0: What's funny. You know, I was, I, there's a woman who started to come around to our secular student fellowship at USC. And, and that is a re, like, if you came there, you would go like, yeah. Oh, that just is what we're talking about. That's a, right. a loving, group of belonging. Mm -hmm. It looks like a youth group. It looks like the youth group that you went to, um, except it's all built around kind of a different narrative. Mm -hmm. But there's a, a woman that started coming who's a grad student at USC and she's a Zen Buddhist master. Mm -hmm. She spent years in Japan studying, uh, you know, as a, as a monk. Mm -hmm. And um, she was telling me that, you know, she doesn't believe in the supernatural stuff. The practice is so meaningful to her. Mm -hmm. But she said a lot of her colleagues are being co-opted by companies like Google who have figured out that all these meditation practices really work and they enable you to get more out of your workers. And so she said it's a huge moral dilemma Mm -hmm. because if people are living essentially unhealthy lives and you use a practice that's very, very humanizing, Mm To make it possible for them to like mm-hmm. to to stay enslaved to right. a machine that's bad, right? Um, or you know, to her lifestyle, I mean, that's bad. Mm-hmm. She's like, I, I don't know what I think of that. You know, she's like, I I don't know if we should be letting people's unhealthy lives finally derail them, or if by keeping them, you know, by keeping them going, we're mm-hmm. we're sort of what's the word enabling, right? And, and so I, you know, I, I think that when I hear about these, when I see, you know, a lot of my kids are into uh, mindfulness stuff mm-hmm. and it's thrilling to me to see them doing it. But I think it's partly thrilling to me because I see it wrapped around the other parts of the tribal community. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you take it out. Right. I'm, ha- I'm as happy about it because mm-hmm. it's almost giving people a tool to stay isolated Right.
2: Interesting. Well, that's funny because they, they talked about isolation at this, at this retreat. It was at the Upaya Zen Center and Roshi Joan Halifax, who who runs the place, said, you know, the biggest mistake you could make is come here to hide out from the world. Um, you've got to take what you learn here in the Zen practice and use it in your life and use it in the world mm. to make the world a better place. Yeah. So it's in some ways sounds like a Christian missionary, but, um, but she's using Zen
0: instead. And and by the way, that's when we're talking about leadership being the thing that you probably, that I bet you, you missed the other thing that I tend to not see in these groups Mm -hmm. is, is a missional zeal, right? They're sort of like, we found this way and we put up a sign and we invite everybody who thinks this way and who wants to live this way to be in this group, but they don't think they don't have this kind of inner sense that this is a better way mm-hmm. than the way that people are living out in the street. Mm-hmm. We should go out in the street and try, to, and try to draw them in. Right. And that's, I think, you know, if, this, if, if this way of life is going to actually develop into like a new secular religion,
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's going to have to get a little bit evangelical.
2: Yeah. And do you think it's based in cynicism? Like, Oh, what can I do? Is it a feeling of powerlessness or where do you think it comes from?
0: I think it's a, I think it's a reaction to all the bad religious. I see. Evangelism that people have seen, like to all the manipulative stuff. Mm -hmm. But you see, like the funny thing is like, I was an inner city youth worker. You know, I, I used to go to kids that were living really messed up lives and say to them, like, join my community. enter into this, it'll be a better life for you. You'll have better relationships here. You're going to live a better life here. Mm -hmm. And they would always go like, well, what do I got to believe to get in? And I would be like, well, you actually have to believe quite a bit. Um, but now I like, you don't have to believe anything to get in my communities. It's a value based community rather than a a belief based community. Um, but I still want to go get those kids because the lifestyle of mutual love and of, mm-hmm. a, of, a, of a commitment to social justice and a, mm-hmm. and, a, and, a, and a kind of an eager awareness of like let's call, let's have experiences of wonder mm-hmm. and awe because those bring out the best in us. Mm-hmm. That's way better than the stupid lifestyle that kids living on the street corner. Right.
2: Yeah. No, you bring up an interesting point because I think a big problem a lot of secular parents face is that they don't talk to their kids if they are atheists or secular humanists because they don't want to proselytize their non-belief. Um, they have been so harmed by people telling them what to believe that they don't even want to voice to their own kids what they think. Um, and so that was a big realization for me is that to embrace, you know, and not be afraid. You're not proselytizing. It's different when you say, this is what I think. And you can think what you want, which is what I say to my kids, but also what you're but talking about. What what I mean,
0: it was funny. Like there was a point your, in your book where you were talking about the golden rule, And you said, "I I, and I I wrote this down." You said, "Now that didn't mean I thought that we need to. My kids and I need to recite the Golden Rule before every meal, right?" And I found, you know, the first thought that came in my mind is, "Why not?" (laughs) Because those kids that you grew up envying, yeah, they had rituals within their family that didn't just say you can believe what you want, right? But rather, it said, "Oh, you're a McGillicuddy." We McGillicuddy's right. do this. Yes. Oh, you're, you're a Campolo. This is what it means to be a Campolo. Yeah. And I guess my question is, why don't you want to proselytize your kids yeah. into what it means to be an Osman?
2: Well, that's what I ended up doing. So at the end of the book, you know, after telling my son in the beginning that I, that we were nothing when he asked what we were, I, um, I, I wrote my kids a letter. I read the final epilogue of the book is a letter to my children and it's 10 things I believe. And it's 10 things I value that I want them to know and, and sort of inherit and then do what they want with it. Um, they can come up with their own 10 things later. Um, but that at the end of the sort of the journey was this sort of, oh, I do believe these things. I do have this worldview and they need to know it. And and now we do talk openly about it. So we don't recite, you know, things from the Bible or, or but I, I get your point. Um, but we do, talking openly about that is now our ritual, I guess. Um, and I think that for non-religious parents, it sometimes takes a little nudge to get there, to realize um, You know, we've lived in this religiously dominated world for so long, but you have, you know, secular beliefs and values you can share with your kids just as easily. It's
0: so interesting because I've decided a couple of things Mm. um, that are similar to what you've decided, but a little different. Mm -hmm. The one thing is I've embraced the word religion Mm. as meaning not supernatural Mm -hmm. beliefs, but rather the pursuit of life's ultimate questions,
1: um,
0: because I consider myself a religious person mm-hmm. in the sense of I want my little life and my family's little life to be related to a larger narrative,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a bigger story, mm-hmm. and I think that that's the essence of what it means to be religious. Mm-hmm. Is the, the, uh, maybe what Marshall Gans was talking—the story of us. Yeah, um, and and so number one is like I'm I'm open about. This is my religion. This is my way of life. It, yeah. This is this is the ethos that that flows directly out of my cosmos. Mm-hmm. You know, this because I see the universe this way. This yeah. is the way I think we should act. So I'm like, yeah. this is our religion, kid. Right. Um. And and the second thing is is that I don't want to jam my religion down my kid's throat.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But while they're little, I wanted them to understand, and I want little kids to understand. Like this is this is this is our religion mm-hmm. and you don't have to you don't have to keep it as you grow up like you get to choose whether or not you want to hold on to it yes. but 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 you you start out with it mm-hmm. because you were born to me right like it's and and like other people if you were born to somebody else you would have a different religion but like mm-hmm. one of the things you get from your parents is your starter religion right and this is right. our this is our starter religion this is what yeah. I'm starting with so like i we now in our family, and my kids are all grown, but I'll have grandkids soon. Um, we, we, we pray before every meal. Huh. We don't pray to God. Yeah. We just stop and look at each other and we yeah. give thanks. Interesting. Um, because the fact that, that life doesn't come from anybody doesn't mean it's not a gift. Right. Um, and so. Grace, we,
2: grace without God. <laughs> we, it's
0: exactly. We say grace without yeah. God. Yeah. And and i think that the one thing i would say is that those 10 things you wrote down mm. i think it's okay to say to your kids because you say this about all sorts of other things you're like i yeah. want you to share yeah i want you to i want you to grow up to love each other
2: right
0: i want you to grow up to be polite and i think it's okay to say like the reason i want you to be polite is rooted in these 10 things i believe right and so I want you to believe these 10 things until you find unless you until and unless you find something better to believe.
2: Exactly. No, exactly. They are like a secular 10 commandments, yeah. is Sort of the joke we have about them now. And we do a similar thing at night. Every child, like when we put them to bed, they say two things about the day that they're grateful for. And that's just a little ritual practice that we just started randomly. And then I later found out that ritualizing your gratitude by thinking of or saying or listing things you're thankful for does create greater compassion. And so there are these ways we can sort of marry the research to these practices and, and have a more meaningful life, I think.
0: Um, and I, I, I deeply hope, I, I mean, when I think about your family and especially, I mean, I get honestly, I'm thinking about your husband Yeah. because the, 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 The community builder in me sort of sees a guy like that as a challenge. Yes. And what I think is, I wonder if he came to my community, Mm -hmm. if he would say, now there's a community I can join. Yeah. I, I mean, I know there are people that aren't joiners and not everybody needs to be a joiner. Right. But I feel like when you have kids, you want to raise your kids with other people that are sharing your values. You right. want them to hear the same stories. You want to you want them to be you want you want to know if you get cancer, who will bring the casseroles by? Oh yeah. And I I, I always find myself thinking about guys like your husband and thinking, I want to build a ritual, a way of talking about life, a way of talking about compassion and goodness mm-hmm. that'll appeal to somebody like that, and it'll draw them in because. I think that the future really depends on whether or not we can create a new kind of tribe Mm -hmm. that isn't us against them. Right. That's really us. We know who we are for them. You know, that that we exist to serve. Right. And that we exist to make sure that all the other tribes are doing well too. Right. But we know who we are. Right. And we know what we care about and we know how we dance and we know what we sing. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I can't thank you enough for that book because okay. I've, give, I've, I've, I've loaned it to some people. I've been telling people about it because to me it is a really thoughtful journey wow. to this same, to this conclusion. Yeah, And that is the meaning and purpose and belonging above all are are what make us human.
2: Yeah. Right. Completely human. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I feel like we could talk for hours.
0: <laughs> but we're not going to. We're not going to. We're going to hang up now. But this was this was just lovely. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I enjoyed it
2: very much. Thank you. To the degree that this
0: kind of thing is, is not just uh, a book you wrote, which I don't think it really is, but is a, right. a sort of a life, a journey you're on. I really like I'd love to sort of send a few things your way if you Maybe. don't mind. Like I don't want to seem like a creepy a yeah. creepy guy who's like trying to like sell you on a way of life. But when I got done reading your book, I thought I have like I passed through Greg Epstein. I you know, yeah. I passed through Sunday Assembly, like I've checked yeah. all that stuff out. Come to the Unitarian Universalist thing, like yeah. lovely folks, but like they can't settle on a narrative and so you yeah. can't build a community around like You can't build a community around every narrative is equally valuable. Right. At some point, at some point you have to say like, look, this is kind of because otherwise you're always talking about narratives. Everybody's comparing and contrasting narratives until everybody agrees on one narrative. Then you Mm -hmm. go like, okay, now we don't have to talk about the narrative. Now we can talk about what we're going to do about racial injustice. Right. Now we're going to talk now, you know, because you, you, because we all agree like, yeah, we know there's no God. Okay. Now what? (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah. And so there's a couple of things that I think I could turn you on to that you might, that you might dig.
2: I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, this is the topic of my life. I mean, this will never cease to be something I, I want to know more about.
0: Yeah. And, 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 um, and my hope is, I mean, like, I, I can't, you know, I am just an old fashioned, you know, pastor. And so, like, I look at you and I go, like, okay, your kids are still young enough that I really hope, because, you know, youth group, you know, mm. high school is hard for kids. Yeah. And so, like, I really hope that either you find or within Hyde Park, you're able to create yeah. a community that does that other stuff, like, where the kids sort of feel like, oh, we have to go. And you go, like, yeah, you have to go. Right. But, like, they get to know old ladies and they get to know little kids. Yeah. And they feel like there's, there's a sense of, of shared obligation,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, because I think that that sh- sense of shared obligation is one of the characteristics of, of a tribe mm-hmm. that you don't get on the internet. Yeah. Um, but, yeah so I'm, no, just, I'm I, just hopeful yeah. that you'll have that experience.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But when we do, we get it in, in certain ways. I guess it's sort of, it's, I think we're used to thinking in the religious frame. And so I think sometimes when we're also getting it, but we're not getting it quite in that way, we don't recognize, don't recognize that we it. are getting it. Yeah.
0: No, I know people who their church is the bowling league or their church is the, the people that they, um, that they run this, this kind of little nonprofit organization with, or, yeah. you know, the people find, yeah, there are certain kind of people that naturally make those things happen. Right. I've seen restaurants that are churches.
2: Yeah. Now, my daughter, who's 10, says that she's part Christian, part Jewish, and part gymnastics.
0: Oh, what a beautiful, what a beautiful! So line. that's
2: it. Those are her people. Yeah, you know, and and my son's basketball team are his people. So that's sort of theater the,
0: kids. You see, you, you, yeah. you, you, you just called the theater kids, and they they and they figured that out, you know, because they were they were marginalized kids who found each other in that. Right. And so, yeah, and I I I think that the thing I learned in Cincinnati is is that there's something about a community that transcends those, th- that's just about people that live close to each other that say, we're just gonna commit ourselves to each other because we're yeah. here. That, mm-hmm. that that gives kids a sense of belonging and, a, and and even when they move away, they go like, I know where I'm from. Right. And um, and it, that, that grounds them in a way that enables them to find a, same, a similar kind of community somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm trying to do with my, the reason I'm at USC is I'm trying to teach kids a way of being together Mm -hmm. So that when they go out into the world alone and they feel the same loneliness, they'll go like, wait, I know how to do this. Mm -hmm. We get a bunch of people together. We eat dinner this way. We ask these kinds of questions like I know how to make this happen. Right. Um, And my hope is that someday when you move to a new city, it'll be Mm -hmm. easy to find Mm -hmm. the humanist community. Or, you know, it'll be easy to find a group of people that will take you in Mm -hmm. and that will draw you into their mission and and that are eager to go out and find other people because they're like, this is such a good way of life. We don't want anybody to miss out on it. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So that's, that's, you know, my dream, the best line in your book. And I'm going to tell you, this is just, this is just the thing I loved <laughs> the most was you were asking this guy, do you think any of this stuff is really going to work? And <laughs> I don't know who it was, but he said, to ask me in 300 years.
2: Exactly. Yeah, that was Bob Putnam who wrote Bowling Alone, right. American Grace. Yeah, who knows? We're at the beginning, which is very daunting, but also exciting.
0: I feel like my work in mech- in many ways, like I'm not, I can't, I can't make a living at it. I'm struggling like crazy. I don't know how long I'll be able to hold out before I have to go back, dump it all and go to work at Home Depot. Um, you know, whereas in Christianity, I, you know, I was, you know, I was a big right. deal. but. But I really, I always think of that scene from Saving Private Ryan,
2: mm-hmm.
0: where at the beginning of the movie, the, the, the boat, the, the front of the boat drops down on D-Day and the first 10 guys in the boat just get gunned down. Right. And you say like, and right. then the rest of the movie is about these heroes that save the world.
2: Mm-hmm. You think
0: like, you know, the guys who got gunned down, they save the world too. Right. They, they took the bullet that mm-hmm. meant the other guy could get up the beach. Yeah. And I sometimes feel like a lot of us are going to fail yeah. at this secular community building. Mm-hmm. And people are going to learn from our mistakes and they'll say like, oh, that Sunday Sunday thing. Yeah, you can't sing those stupid songs. That's not going to work. Right. And somebody right. else will sing better songs. And, and that if it all happens 300 years from now, I'm okay if I failed. Mm-hmm. But, that, but that the human race ends up That's with a way of life that makes it more likely to keep going. Right.
2: Well, it's interesting if you think about the other thing that Bob Putnam said in that passage was that the religions that are here have evolved over the millennia. They are the most finely honed machines in the religious world that we know because the others died. Yeah we don't see the ones that flopped. We see the ones that survived. And so I think the same thing is going to happen in secular humanist community is that there'll be a survival of the fittest ultimately.
0: I I think you're right. And, and, and the thing is like, I think that when you're in the survival of the fittest, you help, even if you die out, right. You, you force the others to adapt. Right. And, and, and so you know, like someone got a webbed foot because you didn't, exactly, exactly. <laughs> someone so, did so that they could beat get you
2: Webbing. Yeah.
0: and <laughs> if they hadn't had to beat you, they wouldn't needed that. We needed that webbed foot, but that, you know, and that makes them adaptable for the next, yeah. the next, next climate problem. And so right. I'm just, I'm really committed, like, because ultimately, like I look at someone like you mm-hmm. and, you know, reading the way that you were talking to your kids, just mm-hmm. those conversations, yeah. you know, I, I had kids. And I, I I know what it's like to be sitting, having that conversation. And I just thought, you know, if if something I can do will make it a little more likely that 500 years from now, some woman will have their, her little boy in her lap, be mm-hmm. talking to him about what it all means.
2: Yeah.
0: I, I want to do that. Yeah. Because like, and you go like, but you won't be there and you don't believe in eternal life and you won't know about it. And I go like, ah, it just makes me happy now thinking about it, the idea that, that this kind of goodness will go forward. Right. And so, you know, I think that what you're doing and what you, what you, what you did in the book, but I think also what you're doing with your life, Mm -hmm. I think you're, 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 you're helping us get up the beach. Thank you. And, and it's really important because whether or not there are human beings loving each other 500 Mm -hmm. years from now may very well depend on whether we can learn how to create meaning apart mm-hmm. from crazy narratives that nobody can believe anymore.
2: I received a really nice note from a guy who found my book in the public library and read it and gave it to his wife. And he said that my book had made him realize that the way he had chosen to live was right for him. Oh. And I thought, wow, that's all I needed. You, you know, go. I don't care about my Amazon ranking or, you know, any of those things like that. If, if our messages can help people feel good about the life they are living um, and, and not feel guilt for whatever um, he, he not done, then I think that's the, the ultimate message of my book is to embrace your life and, and, and live it consciously and with great awareness and, and love.
0: Yes. Well listen, I I appreciate it. I appreciate you and I, Thank pre- you. I appreciate this time. Thanks so much.
2: Great. Thank right. you so if much.
0: If I can, I'll send you a little follow up, but if I okay. can ever be helpful, like I'm I'm easy to find.
2: Thank you. All this right. is great.
0: Okay, so that was my conversation with Catherine Osmond. Her book Grace Without God is, you know, the search for meaning, purpose and belonging in a secular age. It is kind of everywhere. You can find it anywhere. Um, and you can go to barcampola.org if you can't, and I'll hook you up. I'll steer you to the right place. You can also go there if you want to find out about, you know, the counseling and coaching stuff that I've been doing with a bunch of people. Um, and yeah, and I, and like, I'm gonna, we're, we're kind of moving on this podcast thing. We've got a few things happening now that are going to grow our audience and maybe hopefully grow my ability to, to, to actually put more time into it. Um, And if you want to see it grow, one thing you could do is you could make a gift. You know, you go to the website, there's a place to give, and it supports not only the podcast, it supports the counseling that I do, because sometimes I have to counsel people that just don't have enough money to pay for it. And we have a fund for that, and it supports the work with college students. And you may say, like, why should I care about providing fellowship for a bunch of privileged college students at USC? And the answer is, because they're wonderful kids. We're teaching them how to live more wonderful lives. And then they're going to go, they're going to graduate and they're going to go to the four corners of the universe and they're going to start communities. And those communities are going to be people that know how to be together and how to support each other and how to do social justice and how to cultivate wonder and how to make the most of this life. And that's, and that means that like this whole viral idea that you can really make the most of this life. Even not even, but especially because you know it's the only one that you have. That's gonna go out and 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 it's gonna help a lot of people. And if you're part of it, you're gonna be able to enjoy that. And that's gonna work. That that that's gonna enrich your life the way it's enriching my life. And together, um, yeah, together we're gonna sort of enjoy our lives and then make it possible for other people to enjoy theirs long after we're gone. And to me, that sounds like a good deal. And if you're into it, I'll catch you next time.
1: For more information about the work of Bar Campolo, please visit barcampolo.org.